When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. I want to speak to you for a few moments here tonight on this subject, flag bearer, flag bearer, a standard. A flag is a, is a symbol. It is a standard. It's a flag. It is something that is out in front, and it makes a statement. It's connected in this passage of Scripture to an attack against the work of God, and so there is something that is there toward that attack off. Lord, we thank you, praise you for your blessing and goodness. We ask that you would direct our attention and thoughts to your word for a few moments here tonight. And we thank you for the foundation of your word, the strength of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. As you sit down and you're still looking at Isaiah chapter 59, rather than just plucking this passage of scripture out of its context. Everyone say context. Context, the big C, the big C. Every verse is connected to another verse, and then that verse is connected to a broader range of thought, and they're different contexts. And so there's literary context. What kind of book is it? Is it a gospel? That would be something that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's different than the epistles. That's a literary context. That's a different genre of literature. So the epistles are different than, say, Revelation, which is an eschatological book. It's looking at the end times and focuses on that. So in the New Testament, you have gospels, you have epistles, you have history, which in Acts you have. And then in the Old Testament, you have writings, you have history in the Old Testament, you have the Pentateuch. So literary context is the type of literature that you find in the scripture. So that's one layer of context. You have historical context. So now you're looking at history from the very beginning through Israel and the exile, pre-exile, exile, post-exile, post uh, the writings, the, the wisdom writings that were given to the children of Israel, 400 silent years where there is no voice into the New Testament. That's all historical. And so there is a historical context. So there's a literary, literary context, a historical context, and then there is a theological context. So theology means that you're looking at the study of God through the entire scripture. What about his Christology? That's verses that are going to go all the way back into the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and so our understanding is based on that. So those are three major areas of context. Everyone say context again. Context. And we don't want to take a verse out of its context and build a doctrine out of just the verse without examining all those factors that are so we read this passage, verse number 19, but it's connected to a broader thought, which is chapter number 59. And Isaiah is prophesying, and I want to read a few of these verses, maybe not all of them, but let's just get a feel for how verse number 19 comes about. Verse number one, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So God is able to do amazing things. And the idea that his hand is shortened or his arm cannot reach, God can reach anybody in any situation because he can save to the uttermost. And somebody said, amen, praise God. And his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. God responds to every prayer that you bring to him. It may not be on our time and it may not be in our uh, particular 
framework, but God knows exactly what we need and he hears us. And thank God tonight we're able to worship him and pray and make our petitions known. So this is the power of God. This is what God is able to do. But watch what happens in verse number two. It says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For here's the reasons why. So God is able to do this, but because of the works in your own life, these are the consequences, and this is the why you are separated from God. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. Nobody's calling for justice. Nobody's pleading for truth. <clears throat> they trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockroach eggs and weave spiders' webs. They're producing snakes and spiders. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. There's no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth there and shall not know peace, there is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, <clears throat> obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none for salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. So this is a situation where people's decisions have led them to this place where there is a distance between them and God, and there is no judgment. In verse number 14, judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. These are things that the children of Israel, because of their walking away from the covenant and the sin that was in their life, this has produced these circumstances and these things in our life. I can tell you here tonight by way of introduction that if sin and iniquity is in your life, it is going to cost you. There are going to be some consequences, and God is standing afar off from that, and truth has fallen down in the streets, and we live in a world like this. Thank God for the church where there is opportunity for anybody to come to the house of God and lay down every burden before God and correct every sin. Praise God. It is not something that is foreboding. The house of God is not like that. But you can lay down every burden. You can correct every sin. There is a solution called Calvary. And there is a blood that is able to wash and cleanse every iniquity and every sin. God, I want to make the correction. I want to do what I need to do to be in right standing 
with God. And so there's a personal part of this in chapter number 59. There's a personal part of this. The prophet is talking about individually people going their own way. But as you get down toward where our our verse, our text verse is, verse number 18, according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. But then look at this, fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands, he will repay recompense. So now the focus has shifted off of the children of Israel and the inhabitants of Israel and their actions. And now it is focusing on the enemies of God, the adversaries of God. And he said, I am going to repay recompense. Amen. God is not happy, nor is he pleased with your attitude towards sin and iniquities if it is not taken care of. There is judgment that will come, and there are difficulties that will come your way if you continue to live in that kind of environment and in that kind of state. You need to get it right. But on the flip side, God is also angry at the enemies that would come in and try to destroy the people of God. I'm thank, I thank God that God knows exactly where I am and who I am. But he's also a defender of my opportunity to live for him. And when the enemy comes in and tries to destroy, there is a standard bearer called God. Jesus Christ himself, the author and finisher of our our faith that will stand up in defense of you and stand up in defense of the church. And so when a flood comes in, there is something that stands in the gap. If you're under a spiritual attack, there is a God that is greater than the spiritual attack. If there's difficulty coming your way, there is one that is greater than the difficulty, and he raises up a flag. He raises up a standard against it. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm teaching here tonight, but I feel a little preach coming in. If you're in the middle of a struggle, know that there is a God that is great. Hallelujah. And he's going to raise up his own flag. <laughs> There's enemies coming, and they've got their flags. They've got lust and evil and all kinds of stuff, carnality and wickedness, and they're not ashamed nor afraid to wave their flag. Thank God there's a flag that is higher, that is greater, that has more authority. Whose flag is it? It's Jehovah's flag. Whose is it? It's Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. This notion of, of flags is, is very noticeable in the scripture, and we'll look at that history. But before we get there, we are, we're going on a journey, and we have for the last number of, of weeks, on talking about what holiness is and how it impacts us. So a lot of what we've stated they're all foundational things. For example, holiness is separation and dedication. I hope you captured that. It's, it's twofold. It is separation because separation is something that we find all through the Scripture. But it's not just separation because sometimes if we just focus on separation, we get a jaded view of what separation is. It becomes all about rules. The other side of the equation is it's dedication. 
And so they work together. I'm dedicated to the work of God, and God, because of my dedication, sets me apart, and they, they work together. <clears throat> and so when your heart is right and you're dedicated to the things of God, it's a whole lot easier to be holy. But if you fall out of dedication and commitment, then it becomes a struggle, and that's where the temptation comes in. Somebody said amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. So holiness is both separation and dedication. Then we talked about separation as being something set apart. You look in the scripture, God is always dividing stuff, light from darkness, firmaments from above, beneath. Uh, when they go to the mountain and Moses is going to meet with God, they're told not to touch the mountain. There's a barrier. There's a separation. There is a boundary. And all through the scripture, we find this taking place and happening because God is calling people out of their situations, out of their environments, out of the world, and he's calling them to himself. And then, if that is the case, and we have an understanding of what holiness is and separation is, then what is the problem? Well, the problem is the conformity of the world. There is going to be a pressure to try to get the church and the called out ones to conform to the environment around them. We can see this in the life of the children of Israel because their biggest challenge was conforming to the nations around them. This was their, their, their big struggle. And, and then, synchristically, they would take things from the outside into their own worship, and then the, the waters got really muddied, and now idolatry is coming in, and now there's image bearers in their life that are controlling them instead of God controlling them, and so conformity becomes a huge problem. So the world is always trying to, to cause you to conform to its ideals. And I think in that particular lesson, I said, we just, we just need to recognize and understand flat out, okay? We are never going to be accepted by the world. If, if we establish that, we're going to have a whole lot easier time moving forward than if we try to please the world. If we try to please the world, we will water down our message, we'll water down our identity, and eventually we will not have anything left because of the power of conformity. So uh, conformity is a real thing. And the scripture said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's what's interesting. If God is trying to form us, then the world is also trying to form us. And you can't straddle the fence between two worlds. You can't live in that kind of limbo. you got to make a commitment. And so you say, well, I, the church is, is too conforming. Okay, you get out of the church and you get into the world, and what are you going to find in the world? Conforming. They're going to have certain ideals that are going to pull at you as well. And so the church has to recognize, if I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be righteous, there's going to be a lot of things that try to buck up against my faith and my spirituality, but I'm not going to let the world dictate the terms. And I'm not going to let the enemy of my soul dictate the terms. I'm going to let God dictate the terms. I'm going to see myself through the lens and the eyes of God. Man, this is refreshing. We got a world that's looking like the same. We got a world that's following after stuff. They are looking for something to create a cause and become an activist because their life is, it has no purpose and it has no meaning. You've got an opportunity to be involved in the kingdom of God, do the work of God, impact your world.
Then we talked about separation as a privilege in attitude and identity. I don't think we're going to make much of an impact if our, if our attitude and mentality is not, I am thankful to be a called out one and I am separated unto the work of God. If that is coming across in a negativity, it's not going to be palli uh, palatable to anybody. But if there's joy coming out of us, the scripture said joy unspeakable and full of glory. If that's coming out of us, it's going to cause people to read us as an epistle read of men and women. <clears throat> so these things are all important. And here we are now talking about the flag bearer and more specifically the standard that is raised up against the flood that comes in. Standard here is a flag. It's, it's an ensign, it's a symbol, it's something that is known and recognized. This was connected to the history of the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 2 and verse number 1, the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. Far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. So when they were moving together, they would come to a particular place and they would pitch by their standard or by their flag. That's where they would camp around the tabernacle. And so every single tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel, every single tribe had a flag and there was a representation. This is addressed in Genesis chapter number 49 when Jacob is talking about each of his sons and he's describing them and he's telling each one of them how he sees them. And so Jasmine is the symbol of Reuben's flag. Each one is different from the other. Simeon's flag represented a city of Shechem as his symbol, city gates. Levi depicted priestly breastplate. A lion is the symbol flag of Judah. If you ever hear somebody say, the lion of Judah is in me, they're talking about the symbol, and then Jesus is, is the, the actual fleshing out of the lion in Judah is Jesus himself. So the lion is a symbol of the flag of Judah. A snake is the flag symbol of Dan, and it has to do with justice and a lot of our uh, symbols that we get in terms of the court system are connected to that kind of idea. A gazelle is the symbol by of Naphtali. Gad's flag is a military camp. An olive tree is Asher. Sun and moon are the symbol of Issachar's flag. Zebulun's flag represents a ship. There's a wolf on Benjamin's flag. And then the two tribes that make up one tribe of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh the bull is Ephraim, and a wild ox is Manasseh. So this was given by Jacob to his sons, but then they became tribes with flags, emblems of organization in the wilderness. They would plant the flag. That's where they would camp. But then once they got into the promised land, inheritance was also based on the 12 tribes and the flag. So according to Isaiah... The Lord, we have these flags and we have these standard bearers, 
And in this particular case, Isaiah is saying there are, there are flags or symbols that are important to our history, the Hebrews, but there is also a God that also has his standard. And there are struggles and oppositions anytime you know during the Old Testament where there is a covenant theology, as long as they're following the, the, the covenant that they agreed upon, there is blessing. When they don't follow it, then there is cursing. Many times when they would get uh, so misaligned, then nations would seize the opportunity. If, you, if you're not rock solid, there are nations around you that are going to see that as a weakness and they're going to rise up and they are going to cause you problems. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and in some cases, the northern part of Israel was fighting with the southern part of Israel. So you got to make sure that you are strong and your flag and your symbol is strong because if it is not strong, then there are other nations that are around you that see your vulnerability. And if they see your vulnerability, they are going to take opportunity to try to destroy you. This is why we got to have revival. Man, there's a message in that. The flag has got to be strong and it's got to be seen. What is it? It's something that is, it is seen by everybody that is a flag and a symbol of revival. We're going somewhere. We're taking territory. We're not going back but we're moving forward because if we ever get to the place of weakness, the enemy's going to come in and tear up Jack, whoever Jack is. He is going to do his very best to try to destroy us. We need to be strong for our children. We need to be strong for our young people. We need to be strong for our families. We need to have a forward movement because if we're going backwards, the enemy's going to fly the flag. Enemy's going to fly the flag. And, and Isaiah said in this particular case, God was upset with the flag bearers because they were leaving the purposes of God and the enemies of God were subjugating and taking control. And therefore, God said, when they come in like a flood, I'm going to raise something up that is more powerful than any flag bearer or any image bearer or any symbol of any nation or any force or any spiritual advancement, something is going to be more powerful. Something is going to be more authoritative. What is it? It's God himself. He's above everything. He's sovereign. He's awesome. His ability conquers everything and he's going to raise up a standard. We absolutely know what this is in the New Testament. You know what the standard is? It's Calvary and it's the cross. At the cross, Jesus took the keys to death, hell, and the grave and said, you can kill me, destroy me, put me in a tomb, but after three days, I'm coming up with resurrection power. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm thankful for a flag that flies. Praise God. This flag is set over and against the world. It's solid. It is steadfast. No variableness in it. It is powerful. It is constant. You can trust it. And that's something that the world cannot say. Because it is constantly changing. 
The wise man in Proverbs chapter 30, his name was Agur. So this was not Solomon. It was Agur in Proverbs 30, verse 18. He said, there be three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four which I know not. Things that are puzzling. When I look at them, I am amazed and they are puzzling. They are mysterious in how it works. The way of an eagle in the air, the aerodynamics, the way an eagle flies, you watch it soar. He said, this is wonderful, too wonderful for me. The way of a serpent upon a rock, the way a serpent or a snake slithers and moves and what it's able to do with its body he would say is, is, is puzzling, puzzling, mysterious to me. The way of a ship in the midst of a sea. We'll pass that one, go to the, the last one. The way of a man with a maid. <laughs> Acker said, when, when boy meets girl and things start happening, it's puzzling and mysterious what takes place. <clears throat> and people make good money trying to figure all that out and give people answers for all of the questions that happen in relationships. And so the wise man, Agur, said, that's a mystery and puzzling to me. But then he said, the way of a ship in the midst of a sea. A sea is constantly moving and shifting, and it, what, what might appear calm all of a sudden becomes a huge storm, and you can get caught in a storm. And then there's undercurrents, and there's all that goes with that. And a ship has to maintain stability on that very uncertain environment. And the world is like the sea. It's in constant motion. And yet somehow a ship must maintain consistency on the water in which it is residing. And so the world brings a lot of changes. Some of them are drastic. Drastic. Technology can change so very, very fast. And do an end around. Everything that we try to set up as boundaries and positions, and then by the time you think you know what that particular technology is, there's something already that is happening before that technology because things are constantly moving. Artificial intelligence right now is a big deal, so much of a big deal that all the people involved in our artificial intelligence said, we need to pause this just for a little bit because they recognize how powerful that technology could actually be. So sometimes we think, well, we know where we are, and then immediately there's something already taking place and happening. So this is the world that we live in. It's full of change. Philosophies change. Ideas change. And many of these changes are derived from three major what we call isms. Humanism, the prime importance is placed on person rather than divine. So humanism is, is not reflecting on any kind of faith. It has to do with people and humanity. And so its focus is on the person and the interaction of, of persons with other persons and not necessarily on anything like the scripture. So humanism can become a definite uh, catalyst of change. Relativism, which is truth that is connected to culture, society, or historical context and is not absolute. And so they would say there, there is no absolute truth. You could say the scripture is absolute, but 
a relativist is not going to believe that. They're going to believe truth is whatever is in the culture at the present time. Or truth is what society is producing. And there is nothing that is absolute. We live in these kind of times right now where there's a lot of humanism and there's a lot of relativism. And then the last one is pluralism. Pluralism holds that it is wrong to assume that one set of values is superior to any other set of values. Therefore, you, you can't come in with absolutes because your absolute is no more important than my absolute. And so there is a co-owning of truth and everybody is supposed to get along and it's supposed to be done in a non-judgmental diversity and that that is what they would say is the strength of a given society where everybody is okay well I think we're seeing some of that in our present culture where people may say initially that everybody should just get along but those groups <laughs> have just as much of a superior attitude about what is wrong and what is right. And then if it's produced from the culture that's just coming up with all of these ideas, you, you've got a, a goalpost that is constantly moving and it's not fixed. So in the game of football, you've got a goalpost that's fixed. It doesn't move. So if a field goal is going to take place, it's there. It's absolute. It is fixed. But in this relativist pluralist, humanist society, the goalpost is moving everywhere, which causes confusion and breaks out in all kinds of environments that has an impact on, on every strata of society, relationship, humanity, and everything, because there is nothing that you can anchor yourself to. And so young people, they, they're, they're trying to figure out where their meaning is, how they identify, and with what, and, and, and what's, what's the meaning for my significance and purpose in life? What is going to inform me? What is going to define who I am? Uh, a bunch of other people that are over here creating something, a philosophy, humanism, what is it going to be? I'm telling you here tonight, we are basing our experience on the Word of God, and the goalpost is the Scripture. And we do believe, in fact, that it is absolute. We need to be kind. We need to be tenderhearted. But we have to have some convictions and stand for the truth and say this is the word of God that directs us. It's tried. It's true. It works. We found it to work. And we believe it is superior to other things in the world. Amen. And you start reading some scripture. It just becomes very, very clear that the scripture is not coming from a pluralist viewpoint. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse number 8. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. So Ezekiel is saying, O prophet, you got to declare to the wicked man that he's wicked, because if you don't declare to the wicked man that he's wicked, his blood's going to be on your hands. But if you declare to the wicked man that he's wicked, and then he takes his wickedness and does what he does with it, then it's not required of you. We need pulpits that still preach truth. 
We need to still preach against sin. I know that's not popular nowadays because nowadays church has become a social network where everybody feels good and some of these isms I'm talking about has come into the church where the preacher's worried about preaching from the pulpit about sin because he's afraid he might lose somebody for offending them. The gospel's always going to offend you because it's going to rub your your, your humanity wrong. This is why the scripture says repent and be converted that it by its very nature is combative. There's got to be a pulpit that preaches a message to the wickedness that things need to change. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So humanity, thinking humanity is right may lead them to death. One of the greatest examples in the scriptures in the book of Judges, you see this vicious cycle that happens in Judges, and then there's a phrase that runs throughout Judges. The cycle goes like this. They would fall away from God. They would be delivered into their enemy's hand. Then they would plead to God in repentance, and then the Lord would raise up a champion or a judge to deliver them. There would be rest for a certain period, and then they would repeat the cycle over and over. And at the end of every cycle, the phrase that you would get is found like in Judges 17 and verse number 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So they were doing things based on their own Emotions, feelings, circumstances, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And it caused the disillusion of their society, their culture, their land, their property, their relationship with God. Everything crumbled in on itself. And and then they were subjugated. And it would be that way until God would raise up a Samson or he would raise up an Othniel or raise up a Gideon. And then there would be a period of rest and they take their foot off the gas, and they go right back into the same vicious cycle. I want to tell you tonight that there are s- spiritual and scriptural absolutes. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23, I'll, I'll give you just a few. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's an absolute. Sin is going to bring death. I hate sin. I hate the accuser of the brethren. I hate the devil because all he does is he tries to tear down He tries to kill. He tries to destroy. I thank God for the gift of God because it brings eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is an absolute. John chapter 3 and verse number 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I've had conversations where people, I, I don't really think Jesus is, is saying that somebody's going to be lost and damned to hell. Well, that's what he said. <laughs> he said that right there. He said it. I'm not saying it. He said it. And it's an absolute if he said it. And so if you come into conflict with that and you say, well, I don't think Jesus meant that. Well, now you are becoming the isms that I just talked about where you're the one that's making the truth. And if you start doing that, you might as rip out every page that's in the scripture. 
because you're the one that determines what is truth and what is not. The truth is supposed to, we're supposed to look into it, and it's supposed to change us, not the other way around. We don't look into the truth and say, I want to change that. I don't like that. I want to move this around. I've heard of people going into hotel rooms and taking out the Gideon Bible, and they look through it, and they find some verses they don't like, and they tear them out of the Bible. Well, that's not tearing it out of the record. That may be tearing it out of the Bible that's in the room, but the Scripture is still the Scripture. And you're not going to be able to fight against that and eradicate that because His Word is settled. The grass withereth and fadeth away, but the word of God stands forever. Why? It's absolute. It's a flag bearer. And when we live in a bunch of chaos and confusion, thank God that there is a word. There is a flag that is raised. Some people that find themselves in sin and dysfunction need a flag that is greater than the other flags that are flying in their world. standard that is raised against the flood. So what is the standard? Well, the scripture is the standard. Psalm 119 verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When a society, any society, when a society throws away moral law and standards, it will collapse on itself. When, when you ignore morality and you ignore law, what takes its place? Chaos and confusion. And, and in any society, it doesn't matter where you are, if, if the law doesn't mean something, or if you tinker with, with morality to the point where people don't feel like there is any check on their conscience, then you're going to have a lot of confusion. And the scripture is very clear here. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 24 tells the story Jesus is giving the parable about foundations and absolutes, and he gives these words in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We need to build our lives on a firm foundation, a rock. One particular place, they said that Jesus was the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected and turned aside but he is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation. And so our life needs to be built upon the scripture, which is like founding it on a rock. And the church should be a flag bearer to the world. God's holiness is what thwarts the flood that tries to come in. There's a flag that is raised. There is a standard that is raised. There is a word that is raised. 
And God calls us to the same task. If God is the standard bearer that raises up against a flood, and Jesus is the representation of that Jehovah in the Old Testament, and then he produces in his life and establishes a church, then he calls the church to be the flag bearer to the world. I, I, I'm thankful I've got a testimony. I'm thankful, I'm proud of the fact that the Holy Ghost flows through my life and there is a shining that comes forth that has the ability to impact those around me. This is what the church is supposed to be, to raise up a clear signal, a clear sound, a symbol that is right, that is of truth, that brings about not confusion, but brings strength, not chaos, but brings peace. It's a standard or a flag or an emblem, and it's a sign with reality behind it. So when he raises up a standard, there's authority, there is rule, there is a model, there is something that is flowing through that. Our physical and spiritual DNA is what should identify us as the church. What do I mean by that? I mean that our spiritual and our, our DNA in our life both in the way that we dress, our conduct, how we conduct ourselves, our worship is what identifies the church. And that is a flag, and we are a flag bearer. We're a symbol bearer. We have the image of God marked on our life. This is why 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> Praise God. God has called us to be what? A flag bearer. Amen. Praise God. I, I want to be what God was. When a, when a flood comes in, there is a standard that is going to be raised against it that is powerful. When there are people that come to the house of God and they feel like they are overwhelmed, I want to be the flag bearer that says there's something more powerful than your situation. Praise God. There's something more sovereign than your addiction. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's something with more authority than the chains that are binding you and controlling you. There's a flag bearer, and there's a church that is going to rise to the occasion in the middle of the flood and say, nope, there's a way out. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Now there is liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is. And God's anointing and God's power and God's ability, you got to raise that flag high and say, hey, we know there is a God that is able to do above and beyond what we could think or ask. If you're addicted, there's a God that can pull you out of addiction. If you got sin in your life and you feel like there's no way out, there's a God that is able to forgive every sin. If you feel like you're going to commit suicide, there's a God that can put some purpose in your life and give you a reason to live. Hallelujah. Come on, church. we got to raise the flag up and say, this is a sovereign work of God. This is a power that comes from a standard and a flag that is raised. 
Hallelujah. Come on, let's clap our hands. We don't need an unclear sound. We need to be seen. When you're in the middle of the battle, you want to look up and see. There it is. That's the flag. That's the power. That's the direction we're going. Why would somebody not? You can be seated just for a few moments. Musicians, come if you would. <clears throat> Why would somebody not raise If it's so important in the Old Testament, ancient battle was all about flags too because, you know, you're... nowadays, <laughs> warfare is much different. Some guy's sitting in his cabin in Montana on a computer bombing somebody over there halfway across the world. But in ancient times, when there was a struggle on a battle, which means territory, territory, you had a flag to see, are we making progress? Are we going backwards? And so if the flag is moving, then there, there's some oomph and power that is move. We're moving. And if we're going the other direction, okay, we better dig our heels in because we, there's a flood coming. And so your flag is extremely important. Same, same, same thing in the church. Where's the flag? Where's it, where, where are we going? Are we moving forward? Are things moving forward? If we're moving forward, step on the gas because we're taking territory. God's doing great things. And we refuse to be satisfied with just a little bit of victory. We want a lot of victory. Or, man, we're under this. Boy, this an attack feels like a flood's coming in. It feels like we're backpedaling. We got to dig our heels in here because we can't lose this battle or this fight. Everything hinges upon where the flag is and what God is doing because we refuse. We've been around here for 80 years, so if we're backpedaling and we're feeling like we're under distress, we're going to dig our heels in and make sure the flag is planted in this city. And it's not just going to stay neutral, but it's moving. Why would you so why would you be hesitant to put the flag up? Seems like this is kind of the environment that we live presently in our own culture. People are afraid to say anything because if they say something, oh man, there's gonna be a big online backlash, and then people are gonna say this and you're gonna get canceled. Well, the church has never been somebody that's been afraid of being canceled. Because we're not operating on what the culture says. We're operating on what the Word of God says. And therefore, we're going to stand true to the Word of God no matter what comes our way because there is a standard and there is a flag that is raised. So why would you, why, why would you be hesitant to throw the flag out there? Right? You know what I'm saying here? Is, is, is it relating here? Why would you, why would you be Afraid. I'm not talking about being ugly and ridiculous and hitting people with your flag. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's a, it's not a sword. It's a flag. Why would people not raise the flag and why would they be hesitant? It's because fear hinders an open display of the flag in battle battle. Everyone say battle. You are in a spiritual fight. There is a 
battle for your soul. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost right here. I could preach right there for another 15 minutes. You're in a spiritual battle. This is not patty cake for Jesus. The enemy would love to take you out. Thank God you're in the house of... I don't care if you're making incremental steps. I, it doesn't matter to me. The fact that you're here in the house of God means that the flag is there and you know it's there and it's it's there. It's there. What if it wasn't there? There would be no hope. But there's hope tonight in the house of God. And the enemy would love to take you out, asphyxiate you, assassinate you, kill you, murder you, destroy you. But you're in the house of God tonight. Praise God. Because there is a standard. display of the flag in battle. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, I'm almost done. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be thou therefore not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Praise God. Fear keeps us from our best. Fear keeps us from our best. Look at the parable of the talents. He gave, he gave one five, he gave one two, he gave one one. The one that had five, doubled it. The one that had two, doubled it. The one that had one said, I was afraid and I hid the talent. That, that wasn't talking about just talents and financial monies. It was talking about the flag and the kingdom of God and the ability to be used of God. That's what Jesus was, 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 was getting at. He was talking about the kingdom. And one was able to do something with it. And the other was able to do something with it, but the one said, I, I was fearful, and so I just died. Courage is not the absence of fear. You can be courageous and scared out of your mind. Courage is the conquering of fear. It's the conquering of fear. You've got to conquer some things. Praise God. The world, the world has its standards. Gang affiliations and what have you, they have colors. Sometimes they use sports teams to figure out, are you a part? And you get shot wearing the wrong colors. And nowadays, it seems like the NFL and people that go to games like that, they're in their own gang warfare because everybody's fighting. We have lost the sense of decency in our world. We don't even know how to treat each other. I'm talking about society as general, not the church. You're my brother and you're my sister. Together we can do great things. But the world fighting each other. Brawls, people falling all over the place. The world has its, its flag bearers. It's shown in gang affiliation. Bakersfield has one of the highest gang rates and murders and everything in, in the United States. And so when you become a part and you're initiated into it. Sometimes the initiation rites are horrible. And so when you're initiated into that, you're raising a flag. Am I right, Brother Chris? And then it's not so easy to say, ah, you know what? I, I don't want to mess with that flag anymore. They, they don't let you out of that so easy. God's never going to force you to live for Him. 
You want to walk away right now, you can walk away. Praise God. That's not, that's not how it works. It works because you love him and you appreciate and you are dedicated to him. Nobody's forcing you. Nobody's telling you to do it. It's in your heart. And you want to raise the flag of God's goodness and the gospel and the power that comes with it. Not that you're forced because you have a love for God. Amen. Business, they got their flag bearers too. What are you trying to drive at, Pastor? The church should have some standards. It should have some flags. It should have some boundaries. It should have some authority. It collectively should have some rule that communicates to the community that it's in. Hey, we are one God, apostolic, tongue-talking, heaven-bound believers in Jesus' name. <laughs> the church. Amen. Why don't you lift up your hands together. Lord, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, we the Holy Ghost in this place. Hallelujah. There's a flag. It's moving forward.
Let's pray that prayer together. Praise God. You're the one that conquers everything. Hallelujah. We agree together in this place tonight. Hallelujah. We see your ability. We see your strength. We see your standard that brings anointing and power and strength to us. So when the world comes and buffets us and struggles come our way, we're resting in your ability and your strength. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. A name that is above every name. Hallelujah. One more time. Let's glory in his goodness. Glory in his presence. Hallelujah. We glory in the fact that you are sovereign. You have all authority in your hand. Lord, I thank you and praise you. Cover us, oh God. Reveal to us once again tonight that you're a God that is consistent and constant in a world that is so in flux. You're a God that is stable and consistent and rock solid. And we trust in you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. As they continue to sing, you are dismissed. God bless you for those that are still praying. Hallelujah.